welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On episode 31 of Why Make, we talk with Adam Manley, a San Diego, California-based maker and educator. Trained in furniture making and construction techniques, Adam creates a range of works from large-scale sculptural objects and installations to furniture and functional objects. While maintaining a creative and rigorous making practice in a co-op shop, Adam is also an assistant professor of furniture design and woodworking at San Diego State University and the president of the Board of the Furniture Society. We talk with Adam about everything under the hot California sun, including his zine, Craft Desert, a pinstriping competition called Paint or Die, the Flat Rate Exchange Project, and his formative years growing up in the Adirondacks of upstate New York. So kick back in your preferred aquatic observation viewing station and enjoy our conversation with Adam Manley. Welcome to Why Make. We're here with Adam Manley. Hey there. How you doing? I'm uh, very excited to be here. So Adam, Adam, we're real excited to have you on the show and we're just going to kind of jump right into our, our first and only official question Yeah, is, uh, we call it the why make question. It's a, what was your first memory of making something? So I, uh, my first memory of making something, um, I kind of want to give you like a two part answer to that. Yeah, go. Yeah, absolutely. Please. It, it can be four if you want. There's, okay. there's, no, there's no rules on the answering of questions on yeah. why. I'm not going to cut you off for anything. I promise. So like, uh, you know, the first, the immediate thought that comes to mind is like, I was in college studying political science in the Hudson Valley, and I, I got a degree in political science and international relations. And while I was doing it, I was, I've always been interested in art, and I started pursuing a minor in art. And um, I stumbled into, well, actually, no, a, friend, a very close friend of mine, Amelia Tolkien, who's a, a pretty well-known in the kind of jewelry metalsmithing world, was in the metals program at SUNY New Paltz, and I took an introductory class, metal, metal and jewelry, whatever, beginning metal and jewelry or something like that. Um, taught by um, Anya Kavarkis, who I think teaches out in Oregon now. Um, she was a graduate student. And I fell in love with with making things like right there. Like I took that class. It was a metalworking class. And I um, was really surprised how much uh, satisfaction it brought me. We did all the basic, you know, it was like so- basic soldering, sawing, filing. It was an introductory level class. And um, there was a hot minute where I was like, I think I might want to like do this more uh metal in particular at that moment yeah and we also had this furniture program taught it's um you couldn't get a degree in it it was kind of this side smaller you could take electives in it in the art school there and i tried that um and it uh it just it it was like that's the fit right there um so the first thing i remember making uh my professor jeff johnson who actually went to san diego state for undergraduate years before before wendy was here and you know, the first project is like a sort of inventing a tool, like make a tool of some sort, hand carved, you know, just to get you comfortable with the material. And I remember it was like the first time I'd ever used a gouge and a rasp. And I was what, uh, 19 or 20. 
and uh i was just like the, that feeling the first cut it was like this is uh this is not what i expected this is something <laughs> that i love immediately wow but the second part of that story is that i think the reason it was so surprising is because m- my dad's a woodworker i grew up around boat building and um oh, okay. he was kind of a part of a group of like i think of them as like hippie carpenters you know in the, in the, <laughs> in the 80s like i i remember one of my first memories as a child is like playing sitting on the ground and playing while like my friends lifted the walls for one of their friends houses like weekends were spent raising raising walls for for the 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 crew you know and like but i never took interest in it and Mm -hmm. so so there's this interesting thing about like my first time i did it and was like oh this is this is something i that's can be enjoyable yeah was in college and i had to find it on my own but i remember like my dad the first time my dad took me out to the shop it was like I'm really into music. So he was like, let's make, we're going to make CD racks. It was yeah, like, nice. <laughs> right. You know, it was like CDs, CDs have caught on at this point. So I think we're going to make some storage systems for them. And that was the first thing I remember making ever. Yeah. And really not being that interested. Like, not, you know, it was like dad's thing and it was fun. We got to, like, I got to go out to the shop, but it wasn't, I never thought of it as a thing that I could do until I yeah. sort of had to find it on my own. I mean, one, the other thing I was thinking about is like, you know, now as a teacher, how do I look at, at that whole story and how do I relate that to teaching? And I think about how, even though that seemed like a totally new world to me in the back of my mind, like it wasn't an absurd thing to do. I knew, I know what that making is a thing that people do. Yeah. You knew about it. I knew about it and I knew that it was viable and that like Mm -hmm. I was given the opportunity to think about it being a thing that I actually like pursued. Whereas I I look at my students now who didn't come up around that. And it's like, this first thing is like, this is the first time you've ever been exposed to this. It's, it's something I have to keep in my mind. Like in a way it's like a uh, one of those privileged things we're talking about. I came up around it. I knew that this thing was viable and was surrounded by people who did it for a living. Now, the whole notion of growing up using your hands, whether you decide that's something you want to do later or you decide that you know yeah. you don't want to do it, it's an interesting option that a lot of people don't grow up with at all. Sometimes it's taken for granted fairly easily, too. I mean, I was raised around pottery. And, you know, since I was two, my mom was a studio potter and she still is. She still throws pots. I mean, she's working on these insane um, fern shaped clay sculptures in her shop right now and you know i was like i should become a potter i should become a potter that kind of went through my head while i was you know young and around it and earning a nickel a bat to scrape them and (laughs) do stuff like that but to this day i've probably sat at a wheel three or four times i you know you know maybe when i'm when i have my midlife crisis next year i'll decide i want to become a potter yeah that's not a bad midlife crisis no, I, it's not. And I and I definitely don't take any of it for granted being raised around it. And, you know, that's, it's been kind of my whole existence in and around arts and crafts. Yeah, well, I mean, the story of how we each find making is, is really interesting. I, I mean, I don't think for anybody it's it's truly linear. I mean, in the sense that you were around it, Adam, but you didn't you didn't choose to do it until you I mean, what do you think that what do you think that bell went off in your head in college when you decided to take that first jewelry making class? Is that you just wanted, or it was just, just the adventure of that age? 
I well, I had always been interested in art, and 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 another, you know, uh, talking about the privileges that we have that we don't even think about. Like my parents encouraged that, and and they had I decided to go to college specifically for it, I would not have been told not to do that. And so it just was part of my world. But in my mind, art was a very specific thing. I grew up in this tiny town with this like no art program in the school, and like art was like drawing and painting, and it was a hobby. You know, like I hate to even say it out loud now, but it was like not a thing you pursue as a as like I hate to say even a living, but like as as your life. Um, it was like a thing that you do for passion, right? And I was a musician, and like that made more sense because I like I I grew up really in, into music and going to see a lot of music, and to me that was sort of a potential. But um, you grew up in the Hudson Valley. I grew up in the Adirondacks, actually. Oh, in the Adirondacks. Yeah. So you kind of had access to Rochester and Buffalo and Albany and New York City music scene. I never went out into like Central and Western New York. I, I didn't okay. spend any time there until after. Um, every, my dad's family is from um, all, uh, Troy, right next to Albany. And yeah, um, yeah. so we went to the Hudson Valley a lot. My mom's family's from the Berkshires in Massachusetts. So it was always going kind of down into Massachusetts and, mm-hmm. and, um, Albany, Troy, Hudson Valley area. So, I mean, and you were probably into the music scene like in the early 90s. Uh, yeah, except that I came up around kind of my dad's a bit of a music nerd and my parents are, are mm-hmm. music fans. So I was a little un, un, unexposed to like contemporary music at the time. I was going yeah. to see like Stefan Grappelli as a kid and like a lot of African, African music yeah. and jazz um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, later in the nineties, I got into my own thing, but it was much more like, um, a lot of roots stuff and folk and, uh, African music that but I really rich I access to that through your, through your parents. Yeah. So that was like a viable thing. Like I knew musicians who were like, I play music for a living, but in my mind, unfortunately craft was a little more tied to. Cause I saw the way my father worked was like, he like to this day, he's like, he's making a, I think making a kitchen right now. And like, on you know, oh, wow. and he would yeah. lay floors and do roof. He did everything. It was like, he kind of mm-hmm. taught himself how to do it. And that was how he, he took care of us and took care of himself. And mm-hmm. so to me, it was like, unfortunately a kind of hierarchy of these trades, you know, like that he always impressed in me, like, you're going to go to college because this thing hurts. This is hard. And, and so like I, I, and that I never thought about it for that reason. Cause, mm-hmm. cause he, he had to do it and it was a lot of work and it still is. And so when I finally got into it, I think the idea that it was connected to art allowed me to have this other kind of idea about it. It was never talked about that way. It was like a, a way of building the world around you. And that was artful in its own kind of way, but it wasn't like, woodworking can be an art practice. Oh, that's, that's actually very interesting. So you thought of it almost entirely from the beginning as, as functional work, as opposed to yeah. you clearly separated art from furniture. Because my next question really was, is what was the transition from taking that first jewelry class to actually getting involved in making furniture and deciding that was, that was the path forward? It was so fast. I like I was studying I was studying political science and the reason I studied that is like I started college the week of 9/11 in the Hudson Valley. And so it was like total total mind blown moment of like I grew up in this I graduated with like 32 students or something like that from high school in this little town 
moved down to the Hudson Valley, like an hour and a half north of the city. And this thing happened in the first week. And it was like, I had to look up what the, the World Trade Centers were, basically. I was just like, yeah. I think I know what that is. And so my whole world sort of expanded very quickly. And I, I was interested in the context of all of the politics that were happening at the moment and, the, and, and, and protesting. And I was kind of trying to be as involved in it as I could and keeping us from going to war. And so it just mm -hmm. that that happened. And I wasn't especially interested in the in it as a business in like, like taking, uh, like supporting myself as a political scientist. It was much more of a like, I want to be an engaged citizen and, and understand all this stuff. And so I took this class when I finally got into that wood class, it was like, by the end of that year, I had a job as an assistant to a local furniture maker named Josh Finn. And by the end of the next year, I was renting a cooperative studio with friends. It was like all in, all in. I'm like making things. This, this is the thing that I want to be doing. And you couldn't major in it. So I just finished my degree. But like, by the time I finished my degree, it was like, how quickly can I write this thesis paper about German social Democrats and the, the rise of the Nazi party, like, and be done with this and, and start making things in, with my friends. And we ran right. a little gallery and studio cooperative in Kingston, New York for years. And I worked for somebody. It was, it was just like, I took that first class and within the next two years, that was my life. It's, it's almost as if, cause I mean, I think when there's that much political turmoil and it's that hard to understand it, to me, it almost is like today. It's, you almost need a refuge. You almost need something you can understand. And there's, to me, the beauty of making is you can understand what your two hands can do. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really hard to understand why we attacked Iraq, why the World Trade Center was blown up. I mean, these are all such abstract concepts. Yeah, it's so intangible. Yeah. Trying to, trying to figure that stuff out. Oh, so. and, and it all seems, I mean, that all seems so quaint compared to now. I thought the world was ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, so did we all. And we're still all alive 20 years later, but like it seems like the world's continually ending. I mean, yeah. I think that's the that's the take home message there. I, I, you know, it's so hard to it's so hard to piece this all out. You just need to be grounded in times yeah. like these of incredible turmoil. And for people that listen to this 10, 15 years down the road, we're right in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of the most probably consequential uh, presidential election that's in the history of the United States. In the history of the United States. And sometimes you just want to go into your studio and whittle a piece of wood with little or no consequence. Yeah. And, and that's what's interesting. If you like, if you look through my work in the last 10 years, it's, it's pretty like, it's, it's very, it's very um, much based in the concept. Like um, it's, mm -hmm. it's project based. It's these kind of heavy, heavy things. But lately I've been finding myself like, you know, people are making brushes and I'm like in my studio, like, oh, yeah. I just want to make some brushes. <laughs> like, I don't, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm finding it hard right now to care about the heavy stuff in my work when the real world is so messed up that I'm, I'm like carving brushes and, and sending them to friends. Like a lot of like, just like, oh, I just sent, you know, spent a week just like carving these little things and I'm like sending them to people for free, like just because I want them to have it. I totally agree. It's like watching a fantasy movie versus a documentary. Yeah. It's like, can't watch the documentary. It's way too serious right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, 
some of the brushes I've seen are off the hook. Yeah. I was gonna say I was gonna say Aspen Galan's making some killer brushes. Yeah. Teresa Auday. Yeah. Uh, um, Ellie Richardson. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Why brushes? What's what's the uh what's the what's the <sighs> impetus or the Because uh... we're sick of we're sick of cutting boards. I don't know. Like like yes. you know, like spoons, <laughs> everybody's making a spoon. Woo! I've always been in I've I actually collect brooms and brushes. Um from the places that I go and it's an obsession that I have, but you know, I first, uh, you smile. It's like, yeah, I'm addicted. Really Aspen posted this little tutorial and it was like, Oh, it's Mm -hmm. not that complicated a process. I had never thought about making them, you know, it was like, and so I think Aspen had a lot to do with our, at least our communities kind of like resurgence of them. I'm just, again, you know, I'm always interested in what's driving any specific idea or driving anything that's going around. And I think the beauty of dr- brushes is again, it, it you take those those technical woodworking skills, and you're just making a useless object. I mean, you're not going to brush anything with that. Though I've been making brushes that I use just to just to put that out there. <laughs> we could do like little mustache or beard yeah. brushes, yeah. or I mean, shop brushes. You know, like a bench brush. That's Come what on, I, that's what I started with. I make a lot of things using old um, tennis racket handles, and so I started I started making these like pretty functional bench brushes out of like just the handles yeah. of, of from old tennis rackets and so i i i got into that whole i was in that no i still am i ran into that mindset when i was in school in 2005 and one of our assignments was a production item for for summer yep. and i was just like i do not want to make cutting boards yeah i was like everybody's making cutting boards or some version of it so i ran into andy buck's toilet plungers and I don't know if you've seen those toilet plungers, but they are the best thing. And I was like, okay, that really got me thinking. I was like, I want to do something that's obviously they're not useless, yeah. but he gave them a spin. Yeah. And I took fly swatters and spun them. Yep. And I do what are called folk art fly swatters. It's so interesting. And, you know, it's a, I think it's a cool challenge to give something like that a twist. Yeah normal useful stuff and just make it really really fun i kind of it's funny because like there's you know it's like people have been making brushes since brushes existed but it takes every now and then somebody brings it up and the moment's right and it's like aspen did that tutorial and everybody i know started making brushes but like i've been obsessed with yvonne mauser's brushes for years she makes beautiful brushes um i have a a a little more functional they're definitely like home Mm kind of home goods but just these fantastic forms um, yeah. I have a little, like a little crumb brush that she makes that I love. A crumb brush. I like that. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> I actually, I was going to get really nerdy, especially when Rob's talking about fly swatters and, <laughs> and toilet plungers. I think it's really interesting from a sculptural perspective to make objects that allude to function yeah. and could function, but that you never intend to use. Yeah. I mean, come on, Rob, you're... Your fly swatter is the perfect vegan fly swatter because nobody will yeah. ever swat a fly with it, nor your nor Andy Buck's toilet plunger. I know. Well, I always got the same reaction that I got with my cutting boards. They're like, oh, it's too beautiful to use it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that defeats the, you know, and I tried to sell them for relatively inexpensive so people wouldn't think that, oh my God, I just paid $200 for this fly swatter. I was selling them for like 30 bucks, yeah, 25 or 30 bucks. And I was like, okay. This is not going to be too expensive, but everybody's like, oh, they're so cute. They're so cute. I was like, just use it. Just stop the fly. That's the whole point. It's, you're supposed to have fun while you're doing it. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going to hear from all the, 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 the save the flies. 
I made a vegan fly swatter for one of my buddies and uh, it's a, it's a fishnet yeah. on a fly swatter handle. So. I was going to say better. It has a big hole in the middle, so there's no way it could ever catch and release, catch, catch and release. Oh, it's just a frame of a fly. Yeah. Swatter. It's right. really fun. <laughs> so uh, we digress, but uh, so moving along from, you know, from first being, it sounds like absolutely bitten by making furniture and diving in um, head first, you went to San Diego state. Yeah. So, so out of grad, when I was in college, I, I like, I got a job pretty quickly working for this guy, Josh Finn, who makes, um, Mm -hmm. a furniture designer and maker in the Hudson Valley. Great maker and just a wonderful person to work with. It was just me and him. Nice and small. Yeah. It was, you know, he had a one person shop and I was his assistant for four years, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, basically the last two years of college and the two years I took off before graduate school. And so I had my own shop with my friends and we were running a gallery out of it and doing all kinds of like the art side was all happening there. But I was also making my money every day working for this guy. And it really got me like more comfortable with the technical stuff, like just just mm-hmm. confident. And, you know, I always tell my students, like, if you want to do this and, and know how to do it, like get a job doing it, because, mm-hmm. you know, when there's when the deadlines are real. Uh, and your your money relies on it, it everything changes and yeah it dials it up a little bit <laughs> yeah we also were doing built-ins and some kitchens but mostly mostly custom furniture stuff and but we would take these these interludes and like we built we built a house on spec one year for with him so i got to like i got to do everything from like make kind of he makes kind of nakashima inspired work in in the hudson valley and like we did a lot of that and so it was like the, the pretty fine stuff pretty pretty precise and fine stuff but then I also learned about like, uh, you know, the large scale and the kind of like building of structures and and code and all that stuff and fast and loose. Yeah, a little looser. And I mean, we built it like furniture makers would. But it was, right, yeah, I can't help doing that either. Yeah, but it was, it, <laughs> it's a curse. I kind of like, I think that the idea to go to graduate school was a, a little bit of a combination. Okay, I loved making furniture, the the fine the fine side of it, like. I was a little bit of a wood nerd and at the time and like handwork, it was all, it all spoke to me. And then at the same time I had done this thing that like loosened it up a bit and I was uh, starting to get this idea that I think I might be more interested in kind of playing with ideas than being a professional furniture maker. I kind of found myself like, well, first of all, if I had to make money making kitchens, I wasn't going to keep doing this for very long. And, um, if I was doing commission work, I think I would get bored. I just don't want to get bored doing what I do. And so I did that. I was doing that and I took a class at Haystack with Eck Fallen. And uh, Eck Fallen um, was, a, was teaching at RISD at the time, was sort of of Roseanne Summerson's generation. They were very close friends. They shared a studio. She's a wonderful person. Roseanne was supposed to teach the class, couldn't. And Eck taught the class. And I, I basically took that class at Haystack and came home and applied to graduate school. I was like, this community, this is the thing for me right here. Like, uh, it, it took Haystack, I think, to understand that last bit, which was that I'm not so interested in the kind of like working with architects and clients side. I want to be a part of this kind of community of people who make for some other reason, some, some kind of mystical uh, reason drives what they do. Yeah, and actually, if I remember X work, um, I remember lots of steel and wire objects that, again, that lo- allude yeah. to furniture, but were not furniture. Yeah, Eck and, Eck and her husband, Charlie, I believe. I never met Charlie, but um, they had kind of a, 
I think they had like a landscape design kind of like objects for the landscape business. So there was a lot of steel, concrete, and but she also made very sculptural. Yeah, some wire frame stuff, I think. It's pretty sculptural work and and she was like you got to you got to keep doing this and like you know one of the things I think about is like my mentors through the years have just been so important to me and there's like I can name one after another it's like these kind of overlapping mentors and I was only I was with her for 2 weeks you know at Haystack Mountain School of Craft and I still am like that person was one of the things that helped trigger this oh, man. you know I can't forget some of mine either I mean Gail Friedel yeah. um just you know, some people that I worked alongside for brief amounts of time and, you know, and then years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how that, those tracks are just left in your mind. So there was a big, it was a big shift. I, I was in the Hudson Valley. I'd never been West of Colorado before. And I, uh, applied to San Diego state. I like, I just knew I didn't apply anywhere else. Uh, Wendy and her program seemed to me to, be the epitome of what I, I sort of thought was my goal in the field. Like there were people coming out, starting their little design companies and there were people in the gallery scene and everything in between. And so it was like, cause I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. I just knew I wanted to explore it more. Um, I applied to one place, met Wendy at the purchase conference and all right, we're gonna we're gonna interject real quick, Eric. Go. Oh, I was just gonna say, um, inside baseball. It's Eric's inside baseball. Yes, inside baseball with Eric Wolken. I just want to say that Wendy is Wendy Murayama, who uh, was the head of the furniture program at San Diego State University. No, I, I actually you you answered a lot of what I was going to ask you, Adam, because obviously San, the program at San Diego State was probably the, it's probably the most conceptual furniture design program of all of them out there, and that the meeting of the Furniture Society in Purchase, New York, uh, at SUNY Purchase was the very first uh, Furniture Society annual conference. And I was there. And that's where I met a lot of these people. That was, oh God, was that, was that night? I think that was 1990. Early 90s, I know. I should know it now with considering my position now, but. Right. You are, are you are president of the Furniture Society now? I'm the, I'm the board president, yeah. You're the board president, right. You know, um, Monica Hampton's the executive director. Yeah. So I was, um, I was at the second purchase conference. So they had another one. Um, when I was living in the Hudson Valley and Wendy was like, Wendy Mariama was like, uh, if you want to come to grad school, we're going to be at this conference. And I was like, I don't, what conf? What, what is, it was not a world I was familiar with. She's like the conference. That's all she said. I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I drove down and that was like my first taste of the kind of community. I'd never, I sort of decided to go to grad school without really knowing the the whole world of studio furniture or, or um, you know, the scene that now I feel like is my home. So, uh, yeah, that conference was it. Right. Oh, so it was, it was the second. I didn't even know. I haven't gone to many Furniture Society conferences yeah. lately, so I, I didn't know there was a second one. So you didn't – I mean, you you were more drawn to that program by the force of Wendy or as – yeah, so I I was, you know, honestly, it was a combination of Wendy, but but more it was Wendy's alumni. You know, I was looking through her alum, and I've always loved Wendy's work, but like to me, what would tell the story of a program was like who's come out of it. And yeah. at the time, I was looking at Richard Ford, who was like one of her first graduate uh, MFA classes, and you know, he had like. He was making this wacky, like cartoonish furniture that looked like it was oh, out of crazy like, stuff. Yeah, it was like it looked like it was out of um, 
uh, Beauty and the Beast, kind of like these over shapely living kind of like playing off of antique forms, but totally over the top decorative. Right. And, and largely upholstered and yeah. very, very cartoonish. Whatever happened to him? He sort of burst onto the scene and then you never, I never heard from him again. He, um, he's in Long Beach. Uh, you know, he was very much not a part of the scene for a really long time. And he and his wife, um, Kathy Ortega Ford, um, they're making, actually, they started a company that makes these really beautiful dog beds. Um, and they're re- they're really sweet, and they're they're selling them at like um, various design fairs and stuff, pretty high end. Um, nice. Yeah, and he's in business also. I think I, I see Rich every now and then, but the, his work was one of the things that I was looking at, and everything. Oh, it was iconic. Oh, it was fantastic, and like I, for me at the time, that was kind of the direction I was thinking. It was like this kind of playful studio furniture. I very really whimsical. Yeah, I very quickly moved moved into another place, but like when I was looking at schools, it was like him and this guy. Brad Johns, who had, was graduating right as I got there, um, both were kind of representing this interesting kind of playful forms, but Brad's was a little more, a little higher concept. But, you know, the, just basically just looking through the years of alum, and I was, I was like, I love Wendy's work, but what I love is that Wendy produced that, all of this. Like, Wendy, Wendy let that happen. That's the kind of program I want to be a part of. And at the time, I didn't know anything about Matt Hebert, who was also teaching with Wendy and is now my colleague. Um, and Matt brings a totally different set of, of skills that were very important to me. And he ended up being Wendy and him both were these kind of counterpoint mentors for me. Matt's, Matt's techier, a little more academic in his approach. And so this balance of, of Wendy as kind of taskmaster and, you know, material like, like playful and, Matt in this kind of more academic techie sense was just this perfect balance. The the interesting thing is so many people that came out of that program have such a playful sense. So I have to believe that that even if Wendy was a taskmaster, she had a really playful sense. I don't I've only met her once or twice. Yeah. And uh I will make a bold play here right on the podcast is that we'd love to talk to her. Yeah. So if we can somehow, you know, maybe, you know, put a bug in her ear. I'll try to pull some strings. Uh Wendy and I are very close. She's my studio mate. So we, sh- we built a studio together three years ago. Um, and we now share this space that I'm sitting in. She's not here, but, um, we like, I, I it's really kind of dreamy to like meet a person, have such a great deal of respect for them, have them as a mentor, develop a friendship. And now kind of like we work together, we, we've traveled together. I've got that little thing going with Eric kind of, it's an important relationship. <laughs> I, I got to tell you this, this story real quick, yeah. Adam. So, so Eric and I kind of, we're kind of brothers from another mother. We've kind of followed the same course. Both of us went to West Virginia university in Morgantown, mm-hmm. West Virginia, and then went to Haywood community college after that. Um, he, he actually went to IUP where you've had a show before. Yeah. And, uh, I did it 15 years after Eric, mm-hmm. but the weird little, so that's kind of an aside, but then the weird little, um, Eric's in my sketchbook from, 16 years ago. I met him in 2012. In 2005, there's a few pages of influences and there's pictures of Eric Wolken's work mm-hmm. and Eric Wolken's work. And, you know, just I'm at the time, you know, stuff that was really stoking me as I went into Haywood in 2004. And yeah. Eric, Eric just happens to be there. And now yep. it's kind of a peer. And I'm, I don't know. I've never called you a mentor because, <sighs> but. Yeah, I wouldn't, kind of, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> you, you, you kind of are, you're my secret mentor. Yeah. There, I said it. 
Okay. Okay. No, actually, okay, the, back, the, back to the conversation. Actually, I was just, while we're while we're here, and we may, you know, who knows whether we'll keep this or not. But the other interesting thing I realized, Rob, is is that your dad's a scientist, my dad's a scientist, mm-hmm. your mom's an artist, my mom's an artist, or was. Oh, she's no longer the parallel. Alive. The parallels are eerie. Really yeah, the eerie, eerie. But yeah, but fun. you know, anyways, um, jumping right back into a discussion on Wendy. So when you got there, knowing that you were. You you were entering a different kind of woodworking program. Where did your work go? Yeah, um, it was a, my idea about graduate school, and everybody goes to graduate school for a different reason. I didn't mm-hmm. get to go to art school proper. Like I didn't get that experience of like critique being important. Like my day to day, just like I'm in the studio. I kind of had this other work, and so it was it was like my side my side hustle. So I came here like with this intention that I was just going to bury myself in this. Like this mm-hmm. was going to be full immersion. It's why I wanted a three-year program. I took out loans the whole time because I was like, I'm not going to work through school. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to like totally immerse myself in this. And I got here and – oh, so so part of that decision was basically like what – not only do I love the idea of this program, but like what will turn my world upside down? Southern California was a big one for that. Like I'm, I'm, I grew up in the mountain of – in the foothills of the Adirondacks. I spent time in Maine, you know, and like uh, the Hudson Valley. And so, so mm-hmm. I was like, what's a place that's just not, not going to register on my, on my charts. And so, right. so part of it was like my move to San Diego actually really ended up yielding the work that I think I make to this day. i driving across the country. Part of it was just like my, my sort of take on the landscape of the country and then moving to this very strange new place that I really loved. The desert has been really important to what I do um, as has the ocean. So like coasts coasts were important to me, but so I got here and like, I kind of played with some of this like whimsical, colorful shaped um, studio furniture forms for probably like, man, it was probably a few months and very quickly I was like, okay, so this is, this is going to be more about concept than, than it was before. And I started thinking more in these kind of larger projects, outdoor work. I started making kind of like guerrilla public work very quickly. Um, use more, so at the time, I started actually tapping more into the experience I got building that house with Josh Finn while I was, while I was um, working for him, almost more than my sort of finer training. I was like, really, really interested at the time in getting ideas out quickly. And so I would build fast and loose and rough and put it outside and like, let it live in the, the elements. And, um, so it was a lot of exploration and a lot of, um, sort of playing outside and photography started to become important to what I do. The document became a a really important element because the work itself might not even last that long. Exactly. And again, like mentors were really important. We had uh, Alan Wexler come as a visiting artist while I was here. He's a hero of mine. And like, you know, we still keep in touch. There's kind of been these moments where uh, his conversation we had in my studio changed my path a little bit. And so after three years, I kind of landed in this place where I was playing with um, familiar objects placed in the uh, in the environment. The photograph was important to what I do. Some video, and that's where I was at when I left grad school. With a lot of growth and failure, and like confusion and frustration in the middle. Right, 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 right. And and actually, I was going to say, you know, 
you've done a tremendous number of projects. I mean, just going through the projects on your website. And I think it's very interesting that the familiar object is a, is sort of a thread that runs through a lot of your pieces. I've been thinking of all the pieces in which you've used sawhorses, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is a, it's not only a familiar object, it's, it's an object every single one of us makers, well, every single one of woodworkers has in the shop and everybody takes a different approach to it, yeah. how to build it and, and the precision with which they build them. It's, a, it's an interesting metaphor as a jumping off point. Yeah, you know, you, you talked a little about like when we were talking about the fly swatter and these kind of objects mm-hmm. that um, it doesn't really, their use is sort of implied, but not maybe it's not meant for that. But to me, the, the reason furniture and these kinds of objects are important is like they all, the more ubiquitous, the better. And so the sawhorse to me is like, it could be something you didn't have in your house, but it was around. For me, it was like a part of my environment, basically, the sawhorse, the beat up circular saw cut, latex paint covered sawhorse. But what it, what it <laughs> is, is that they all contain, they all contain something that we can tap into. Um, yeah. We all have some connection. There's a personal story, and then there's the kind of broader cultural story that comes with it. And I love the interplay that happens there. Like I have the sawhorses. This kind of like my dad had homemade sawhorses made out of two by fours. They were chopped up. They're like this part of my landscape as a kid. But then I also think of them as kind of being stand-ins for a certain like for labor and for for like people who work for a living and hard and and also as these like really pure formal objects they're like pure structure i love them they're beautiful but they're like they exist as absolutely pure utility it's a great form so talk about destroying them yeah (laughs) because you're i mean you know the first picture when you get on your website you're just you're winding a vice into this thing it's just crushing it and the interesting thing is you're breaking it in a very specific way you're break you're breaking its back. Is that a, is that a metaphorical statement or is that so so what was the goal of that very specific destruction of those sawhorses? When you're talking about them stand as a stand in for labor. Yeah. So I can as a, so it's like this is that was probably my most heavy-handed project. Like there's no there's not a lot of subtlety in that in that project, but No, it's kind of in your face. <laughs> I yeah, I mean like so I yeah, that's that was um What's that called? That's called a simple machine. I've done a bunch of different variations on that project for different mm-hmm. spaces, but that was originally made. I'll walk you through my process here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'd love to hear it. I really love model making. I make a lot of small scale things. And for years, I'd been making quarter scale sawhorses and often just putting them in the landscape, just leaving them places, perfect, like perfect scale. So you just kind of find them under, under park benches and stuff. And I would, I would just play with them in the studio. I'd make them by the hundreds. and I, I just loved, I love them. And I often, like I had been designing these big sculptures that were just using them really formally because they're they're They have say like, they have these angles that allow you to make circular forms out of them. And I was just like lashing them together and seeing what I could make them do. But as an example of the way I work, I also am like a tool nerd. And sometimes a tool will trigger a whole body of work for me. And right behind me, we have some threading tools. Um, I see those. I I noticed those um, when we first started talking. I'm still obsessed with them and I love them. And I had gotten a couple of them, some small ones, a half inch um, wood threading set. And I was yeah. just playing with it. Like this thing's amazing. I can make like functioning nuts and bolts. And I made this little threaded sample that went through a block 
and it ended up making this kind of press with it. And I was like, what can I do with this? And I started, I broke one of these miniature sawhorses. And this whole thing's happening on a scale of like, you know, six inches. It's, a, it's an exact quarter scale. And then I did a photo series, which might even be on the website. I'm not, I'm not sure. I did a photo series of these little, these little quarter inch sawhorses. I put them in like basically a sort of military, it almost looks like a, a, a per, military parade. It's just like a row three wide by 10 long or something like that. And I did a sort of stop motion of myself working down this row, snapping them. And this is all just on the quarter scale for, for like, because I'm weird and alone in my studio. And like had not, I wasn't sure what to do. I had a new studio in Maine and was teaching. It was like, I don't know. I was just playing with this stuff. Adam Manley, weird and alone. <laughs> That's the name of my next show. So I was like th- doing that. And my friend Kyle Patnode, who teaches metals at um, Maine College of Art, where I was teaching, he put together a show at that time. Right, It was right around Ferguson. Um, Things were blowing up. Um, people were talking about the police, police brutality, militarization in the police. And generally, like, we were starting to talk a lot about violence and um, how we glorify it and think about it. And he had this show called Tinderbox. It seemed like politics were kind of exploding at the moment. And he asked me to be in it. And suddenly that little thing I had made as a model, I was like, I want to make that as like a C of sawhorses. And I want to think of this as being about systematic destruction of people and thinking about it in this kind of factory way. So I've made this perfect grid of like 40 sawhorses and I made this machine and every, I think in that case it was twice a week. I I generally come up with like a schedule. The machine would work its way down and twice a week it would hover over one and I would come in before they opened. It wasn't a performance, you know, and I would break the back of one of them and roll it onto the next one. And it would hover over that next one for the week. And then I would break the next one. And so by the end of the show, the last one is broken. And basically they're left in a grid destroyed on the ground. And I, I mean, I, I try to play with layers of things and, you know, like in one way, just kind of the breaking of this, like very essential structural form is really interesting to me. And then they're hard to break. They're very strong. Um, but I was thinking about, of course, the breaking of the backs is like not a not a nuanced metaphor, especially. But I'm, I was thinking about labor. I was thinking about the kind of like mechanization of violence and the systemization of violence, and um, you know that thing sort of representative of. I was thinking about industry. You know, kind of working your way down the the assembly line, just like destroying one after another. There's stand-ins for people. There's a lot happening there, but right. Although the the fascinating for thing for me about in terms of my processes is often the concept comes for an for a piece before it attaches itself to a to a bigger idea yeah and for you you're working this idea out in quarter scale and you think well i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna come up with a device and we're gonna break the backs of these sawhorses and i kind of like this as a visual metaphor Mm -hmm. but i don't know where it's going and then it attaches itself to a bigger idea and I think that's just such a great statement for how art works in general. It's not a linear process. Right. I mean, if you, had, if you had started with the concept, if your friend had approached you and said, we're going to do a show about Ferguson, Missouri, where are you going to go? The result would be so much different than you said, well, I have this concept I'm playing with 
and I'm going to broaden it to attach it to this. I, I just... I just think it's a very interesting statement on the artistic process. It would have never looked like that. It might not even had anything to do with sawhorses. Yeah, because you've you've seen my other work. It's 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 pretty outside of what I do normally. It 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 definitely has a nautical element. And actually, speaking of that, somewhat nautical. The other the other image that seems pretty prevalent is this, for lack of better words, the sort of the lifeguard chair. Mm-hmm. What's the, you know, the lifeguard chair we all remember from either the pool or the beach, yeah. uh, you know, and the lifeguard sitting up on top of it, sort of the, I don't know, is it about authority figures? Is it about memories of childhood? What's, what's the, because you actually have two or three pieces with yeah. the, with the lifeguard chair in it. That was, especially that, that was a graduate school go-to um, that sort of like, at some point in grad school, I started building like a database of these objects that to me have some kind of a universal familiarity and also connect to my own personal experience in the world. Um, the, Were you a lifeguard? I was never a lifeguard, but I grew up across the, I grew up on a 30 mile lake, a reservoir in the Adirondacks. So there were lifeguards. There were yeah. lifeguards. I was right across from the beach and that chair in particular was like the white wooden step, you know, ladder step chair was classic. And I grew up on the beaches of the of New England, basically of north of the, of the Northeast, and yeah. So they really get at my also kind of simultaneous love of a certain kind of humor. Like there is a playfulness in that object. Um, I am I'm a product, I would say, of early Simpsons and John Stewart um, in my kind of like approach to humor. Uh, it's a little it's a little dark. It's a little sarcastic. A little sardonic. And so like the play between these kind of like the comforts of your youth and these joyful kind of objects in a, in a, in a, that are recontextualized in a way that make you kind of pause, take pause. And, yeah. and, and then all of a sudden you're hanging upside down from right. it. And it's like, Oh, youth. Yay. Well, it's, it's so that, that play is, has always been really important to me. And, and so the lifeguard chair at the time when I was using that, it was kind of, to me, it emphasized this kind of like safety but then also a kind of watchfulness. Like if you take it out of context and suddenly the idea of somebody sitting high up and watching you plays with authority, it plays with surveillance. Um, I was taking them and putting them out in the environment overlooking neighborhoods. And suddenly it's like, what happens in that? What's that? What's happening in that chair? Um, what are you doing? I, the first one I on did. That chair. <laughs> yeah. And the first one I did, I, I, I sort of gorilla installed on a hillside in San Diego. It, it fell down last year. So that thing stood for like eight years. Wow! Um, no way. And as a as a as a as a piece in that kind of context, suddenly the play between kind of safety and the play of youth around the pool at the beach, those things start to bounce off of like surveillance, Big Brother. Um, this kind of like why why okay, so it's also up on the hillside. Does this flood? Like this is quite like I like yeah, this idea yeah. of of kind of the question of maybe there's something more sinister afoot yeah. um, in something that uh, like, how do you think negatively about the lifeguard chair? I, it also triggered a really interesting uh, set of concerns in my work, which is like universality is bullshit. <laughs> um, I, sorry about that. Uh, like, I mean, you're talking about universality in terms of experience. Yeah. So like this idea that like, so you said everybody knows the lifeguard chair and I said, everybody knows the lifeguard chair. I was in Southern California. That thing doesn't exist here. A lifeguard stands in like a house on stilts uh, here. 
there are there are five lifeguards uh, on on a platform, right? Like that thing is like maybe at the pool, maybe like forty years ago at the pool, but that thing actually is a form. Actually, a lot of people are like, oh, it's a high chair, you know. And so it sort of got made this thing happen in my head where I'm like, oh yeah, everybody does not experience these, I'm quote unquote ubiquitous forms the same. Because at the time I was also playing with this kind of classic house form, this like the box with a triangle on top as house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to a place where like, that's not what a house looks like. You know, it's like, that's not how you build a house. A house is a single story mostly. And you know, it's stuccoed or so those kind of forms were interesting for me to kind of play off of like how we experiencing them, how we experience them more broadly culturally and how that plays off of like our very different personal experiences of things. Oh yeah. And ex- exactly. I mean, it, it actually is interesting that I saw it immediately as a life card chair. Cause that's exactly what I saw in my childhood yes. everywhere. I saw it too. I mean, I was boy scout camps all had yep. that, but on the other hand, somebody, you know, somebody growing up in the heart of urban America wouldn't recognize that at all. Right. Um, especially somebody who was not white. Yep. And the same thing with a house. Somebody that grows up in New York in an apartment complex probably doesn't really have a good notion of what a home is or how a home is built. And they're going to have an entirely different, you know, experiential take on that object, yeah. which is which is, I mean, that's the power. That's the beauty of what we do is that we build these objects that in some ways are so loaded. I mean, what they're loaded with is what I'm playing with. Like that's, that's my hope is like all those things that, that the, you know, I've, I, one of the forms I've been really interested in lately is very similar to a sawhorse, but a wooden barricade. And like, there's just so much that you can pull out of that form based on how people experience it. They are. I saw something really interesting on Friday uh, driving to speaking of barricades, you know, the, the big concrete road barricades, a Jersey, Jersey barrier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just basically the big ones that are eight feet long, two and a half feet tall. You can't move them for all you, everything you have. And they use them to create the cattle shoots that you drive through and different things like that for construction. Well, we were, I was on, my way Friday, taking my car in to get fixed. And there's this normal part. So there are these guys out painting their business barbershop sign on these barricades. I guarantee no permission at all, but an arrow like Bob's barbershop across the street. And it it was, it was just great. I was like, they're, they're totally, you know, twisting that use. And, you know, somebody, they're probably not artists, but they, their boss is like, go paint our name on the, on the thing. Yeah. And right. Oh, I mean, I, I love that kind of adaptation to your environment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. That sort of how we, how we adjust when, when, when the surround our surroundings change. Something I really love is um, Genpei Agasagawa did a book called hyper art Thomason's, which sort of looks at the layers of architecture as we kind of build and, things stop being required anymore, but like kind of playing with like these staircases to nowhere ideas, like that, that often we just architecturally build on top of what's already there because it's easier than, than rebuilding so that, that the world we live in is kind of these layers of time stacked and, and we lose the use of that, that original thing, but it's still built into it somehow. And he calls it hyper art because it's this idea that like, it's not made as art, but as an idea um, it may be the best art there is, you know, there's so much wrapped up in it that, that can be 
turned over in your head that it's like it might be the best art that kind of art that happens as an adaptation to the world around us well not only that i mean i think about all the cd cabinets i built in the beginning of my career (laughs) yeah and 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 it would be wonderful if somebody repurposed them because the CD is no longer a thing. This is a this is an historical artifact to something that no longer exists. Yeah. Although at its time it was the perfect uh, description of form meets function. And bringing the discussion back to furniture and into technology and society, I mean things have things have changed so much, and that the forms we create become obsolete and. And, you know, the decision then is, do we rework them? Do we work on top of them or do we destroy them? And, you know, I think there's evidence of all three considering, you know, the the amount of stuff we throw into landfills. But the CD cabinets are going to come back. I mean, like I collect vinyl. That's like I buy vinyl regularly, you know, and 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 people are needing to store vinyl again. The tape is back. That CD is going to come back. You're going to have a secondhand market for those. Well, it'll be great because I haven't made a piece of furniture in years. So, uh. you were talking about um, the first project when you started woodworking. You made a tool. Yeah. What What was that tool? Uh, it was only vaguely a tool. So my my professor Jeff Jeff Johnson, my first woodworking professor, he um, he really emphasized like imagine imagine you know make up a tool. Don't he was like nice. he was like no spoons. Okay. Don't make a hammer unless it's like a completely weird hammer to do a very specific thing. So that was really emphasized. So like tool as a thing that does another thing, basically. And I I think I carved this like, I was very, personally, I was very interested in like Japanese woodworking at the beginning. A lot of people I know start their first sort of love in this was like the kind of Japanese aesthetic. And I made this like very um, organic bowl plate kind of presentation tray for, I think it was for eating sushi off of. It was like just this, it had a carved dish and then this sort of smaller carved dish that would have been like for soy sauce or something like that. It was, that was the object. It was, it was basically a formal object. It was like shapely carved piece of cherry. He gave us a block of cherry and yeah, um, it's, it's like a mostly a formal sculpture. Exactly, because he gave you a conceptual project from the get-go. He yeah. said, don't make me something real that exists in the world. Yeah. Make me something from, make me a tool from your imagination, mm-hmm. which sounds like actually a great like beginning woodworking lesson. I talk about mentors. That's like a lot of my project ideas. And I've tried to tweak that, like invent a tool for like to be used for doing whatever your favorite activity is or like. I always have this kind of like the idea of tool is good because it roots it in kind of functionality, but I don't want them to make a thing they know. So how do you get, how do you get that out of it? Jeff was very good at that. I think Sylvie actually does a project that I think she learned from Yuri Kobayashi. Like I talk about how we have these like people are passing things around and sharing things. And that's, that project is um, alien fruit. And so it's this idea of like people, you have to invent and carve an alien fruit. And I think it's a really great way to make somebody make something that you've never seen before. It's like, okay, we understand fruit, but you can't replicate anything. And the fact that it's alien means I get to kind of enter this world of fantasy. And now, but it's going to be a kind of organic, voluptuous form just because the word fruit is in it. So I think that's a really clever project prompt. 
uh, right. that she does. And I think Yuri told her about it. And it's probably something that happens at RISD. I don't know where it started, but it's a great idea. That is clever. And, and actually, that perfectly brings me back to something we dropped off uh, that I'd like to circle back around to again, which is, you know, the wonderful sense of humor of all the people that come out of Wendy Murayama's program. I'm just wondering, it. I mean, how does she instill that? I mean, how, what's the approach there that just makes humor such a, a I'm going to say, functional piece of the people that come out of that program? Because I think it is a functional element of a lot of the makers that come out of that program. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a that's a great question. I think part of it is simply like the approach to the process of of making and discussing was always kind of like when Wendy was had a way of kind of being at at the same time like pretty aggressive with her opinions on things, but in a way that was like this shit's not personal. This is like, she would walk in the room and you'd be working on some experiment you'd be doing. She'd just, she'd just be like, what the fuck is that? And you'd be like, at first, you, at first you're like, oh, ouch, my heart, my, oh, I put hours into this thing. And finally, but like, you know, at the same time, she, we'd, we'd be out getting beers together at the end of the day. There was never this like, this thing is not, you don't take it as, so seriously that it crushes you every time a question is asked of it. Um, and but she, she was pushing you in a good direction. Yeah, and 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 it wasn't ever like meant to hurt you or to right. make you stop trying it. Like for instance, I was obsessed. I still am obsessed with gold leafing things. But when I first got to grad school, I was like combining gold leaf and white milk paint on everything. There was this kind of gold and white that was just speaking to me at that moment. And um, at some point, she was just like, "Just stop. Don't do that anymore." Oh, and oh it was like it was like you can come back you can come back to that if you want but like that's not going anywhere and she was really good at at, at that kind of and matt matt is too at, at um getting you to question yourself in the best way possible like not not to pick yourself apart not to take yeah, it too yeah. seriously but to have a sense of humor about it and be like that's just that might be dumb like i might be doing yeah. a dumb thing that we all do dumb things sometimes for no reason and maybe we come back and do it forever, but like, like grad school is not about that. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I think that's part of it. Like having a, it's lighthearted. Yeah. She kind of got under your skin without getting under your skin. Yeah. And, and that's an incredible, that's an incredible skill Yeah. because I mean, we're all doing work that we think is personal Yeah. yet ultimately, you know, <laughs> you've got to be able to laugh at yourself always. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, nothing, none of us have, have our hand on the, uh, on the, uh, nuclear button. Yeah. I mean, we're just, we're making objects that in, in a sense are pretty silly and grad school and pretty ephemeral grad school in general will kill you. If you can't laugh at yourself, like, like that setting in particular is like, if you take yourself too seriously through, through those three years, you might come out so jaded and, and grumpy that it's not going to work out. So uh, moving along to some of the other things you've done, um, let's talk about your your parcel post project, which actually seems does seem to sort of approach a function more than a lot of your other pieces, in that it's all meant to fit in a parcel post box. The um, the flat rate exchange. The flat rate exchange. That's right. My fault. No, th- th- that's kind of meaningful and pertinent to some of the stuff that's going on right now. Yeah. Right. I know it's a different spin on it, but it's the post office. Yep. 
So, so talk about flat rate exchange a bit. Okay. So, so flat rate exchange, um, it, it is suddenly relevant again. And just to, uh, mm-hmm. to, I'll go back to the history of it in a minute, but like we've actually just picked it up again. Um, and uh, surprisingly, just before this kind of fears around the post office started popping up. So it's, 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 um, I'm excited to get back into it in this moment where we're talking about it like that. But my dear friend, Jordan Gaiman, who's a great maker um, and designer out in Maine now, we went to graduate school together and we kept in close contact. And at, at the time, I so after graduate school, I got this job in Portland, Maine. He was living in Oakland and we were like a little stalled. You know, you finish grad school and it's like, Sometimes there's all this rush that happens. I got a job immediately. He got some residencies immediately. But, you know, it's like hard to keep yourself making if you don't have a show coming up. And we have we tend to have some overlapping ideas. And we came up with this idea using only flat rate mailers. So there's like five different sizes right down to the envelopes. And we uh, built a set of parameters. It was really important that it wasn't too loosey-goosey. It was like we want to have some boundaries to work within. So it doesn't just go anywhere. Um, so we sort of, we said, okay, it has to fit inside these, these flat rate mailers, um, which the biggest one is a 12 by 12 by six, I believe. Um, so it could be a box or right down to these small envelope mailers. And we have, we can, I think, uh, uh, I have to go back and look, but I think we basically said no more than five hours on any iteration. And what's going to happen is we'll alternate who starts it. So. I think Jordan started the first one and he, he um, we, we've tried to play off of the flat rate mailers. Like what's cool about them. For instance, you can send any amount of weight in a flat rate mailer. It's like, as long as you can get it in that box, you can send it. So do you send a finished project or are you guys going back and forth no. working on projects? In a way it's an exquisite corpse. So it's like, it's kind of, it's about a back and forth between two people. It's essentially a conversation across the country. And, so he would, the first one, I got a box. It had a plywood box built inside of it. And inside of that was a roll of lead that he had punched a couple of letters into with like some letter punches. And it was loose. He was like intentionally loose. So that thing came to beat up. And you get this thing and it's like some of, some of the things are made. Some of them are raw materials. Okay, what do you do with it? It might be that you boil that lead down and cast it into something might be that you break whatever they made and put the pieces back together. You're totally free to do what you want with it. And then you send it back. And it's not done until one person just gets to decide completion. So at some point you'll get it and you'll be like, no, this is a, this is a done piece. I'm archiving this. Um, and then the last bit of it was this blog. So if you, if you, I don't know if you've been to the flat rate exchange blog, but essentially every post is an iteration. So it's like, Piece number one, iteration number, it was like 1.4, you know, and it might get to 1.6 before we decide that piece is done onto piece two. And so each one was documented in that way. It was a piece about documentation. It was about an ongoing conversation between two like-minded artists. It was about two friends communicating through art. Right. Um, On a cross-country art project. Yeah. Now, just just to reiterate, so one of you gets to decide it's done. Yeah. So if... Right. So you didn't collaboratively decide it's done. You just said, you know, you took that box, you broke it in half and you said, we're done. Yep. You know, and that piece might have had five, that first piece might have had five iterations. Um, One of them floated and and the the actual product that went back to him 
was that floating object plus a DVD of the video of it out in the ocean. You know, like it, it, this is like multimedia. It wasn't about woodworking. It wasn't about function necessarily. It was like everything goes. And so it let us both play with like, you know, we're interested in video. We're interested in performance in some kind of way, even if we don't do it as our work. We're interested in woodworking. So, yeah. you know, we went through probably, maybe we made 10, eight to 10 pieces. We had a show in Wisconsin at Madison. You know, another interesting part of that project was like, it lasted years. Technically, it's still going. But we moved. So we were across the country from one another. Suddenly, we found ourselves both in Madison. I was an artist in residence in Tom Loser's program, another person that I think of as a personal mentor. And um, Jordan was there. His wife was in graduate school. He was teaching in Tom's program. So we brought it all together and had a show. And all, like, all the pedestals were made out of flat rate boxes. It was kind of like the language of the post office was important to it. Um, and now suddenly, we've decided to pick it up back up. Jordan's in Maine, and I'm in California. We've completely switched places. He's there teaching at a high school that has a fantastic wood program. I'm out in California. He's got a kid. We put it on pause for a few years because he started a family and was moving around. And we're suddenly picking it back up. And now all of a sudden the post office is like in the news, you know? So it, it's yeah. going to be fun to do this project um, in a very different climate around the, the USPS. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and the other thing that seems to be operative again, you know, is the, is fun. The notion of you're having fun with this. Yeah. This is you, you give it a framework, but it, it almost seems like the humor is built in. Yep. It's like, well, what the hell is he going to do it? And I love the whole notion of the, the exquisite corpse, mm -hmm. which, um, yeah, that's a fun concept. It's a fun concept. So actually, you know, one final thing we'd like to talk about before we start to wrap this up is your your craft scene. Um, oh, Craft Desert. Craft Desert, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell us what that's about. Craft Desert. Um, I would say that Craft Desert is like one of my favorite projects right now. Uh, I really like to have multiple projects going. It's always been kind of, maybe I have a, some, some ADHD or something like that. I, I really, I get if I have one thing that I do every day, I get kind of bored. And so the, the flat rate exchange was one of those things. It was like total different brain space. Um, yeah. I have my personal practice. I have my teaching. I have a lot of different things going on, but the, the craft desert is like a completely different part of my brain. And it's a lot more, um, it's, it feels important right now at this moment in craft to be doing this, this work. <laughs> this is a collaboration between myself and Carrie Ann Quick, who I teach with. She's a metals jewelry professor, fantastic artist, really smart person who um, we talk about craft together and we decided to start this little project. I'd been publishing um, as a branch of publication studio for years, just putting out books by artists I liked and writers who are, who are, interesting and and had a project total self like on demand self publication kind of thing and when i moved here i was like i can't just keep doing this random like publishing books um by everybody who comes to me so but i wanted to keep working on it and we developed this project so craft desert is like it's handmade um it's a really important part of it is that it is a physical object that you hold in your hand it's not a digital publication it's not a blog you get this thing in the mail um it's a subscription only. So there are two issues a year. We really mm -hmm. want people to kind of 
get at least at least two of them. This idea that like they are they can be archived. You can build a collection of them. Um, you kind of buy into it as an idea, and that idea is that craft is and can be thought of as uh, more of a, an approach to to cultural production, more of like a mindset than a set of um, mediums, which I think often we talk about craft and it's like, well, the crafts, wood, metal, ceramic, textiles, glass. And so the idea of craft desert is like, no, craft is actually a way of thinking about the world and thinking about the things that you do, um, a level of passion, a level of knowledge of subject that only comes from repetition and a kind of work that um, requires intense focus and practice. So, you know, we've featured like Scott B. Davis is a photographer here in Southern California. He photographs the desert. He makes his own cameras. He uses handmade wooden, wooden large format cameras. He, you know, he make, he's made his own paper. These are printed in his, you know, beautiful, he has a beautiful backyard studio where he prints these things. Um, with like these beautiful details. And so it's sort of like, that's craft. Why is that not craft? That's craft right there. And, you know, not, some people wouldn't argue that at all, but some people really like, that's a leap, you know? And, and also thinking about like, we're in Southern California, San Diego. It's not a place people think of as a hub for craft as we think of it, but it is. And so like, what is happening right here that is maybe going to, be a bit of a surprise, but is absolutely craft practice. We we featured like um, this thing called Paint or Die, which is in in East LA, which is like a group of people who are teaching young people how to pinstripe lowriders, like painting oh, techniques that. for lowriders, and that's like they're like handing down this amazing craft. Like they, these, they have these um, or these like. Um, events called paint or die where they like get together That's cool. they're like paint offs and they're like painting that. Weber grills like they would a, a, an Impala lowrider to practice. Wow. And we, I was thinking like, I never thought about this, but how do you practice painting a lowrider? Like you, you can't just like learn how to do it on the side of this project. So they're like tattooists use, use melons or pumpkins yeah. or pigs. pigs yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're like painting metal objects, trash cans, you know, like to, to get there. Wow. And so that's, you know, we've had everyone from like Ron Rael has been interviewed, who um, mm -hmm. is a, a architecture faculty at Berkeley. And he uh, has a book called Border Wall as Architecture and kind of like uh, this very multidisciplinary practice around architecture and border politics. And so we're playing with the border region. We're playing with the desert, but we're thinking about like what, what is craft? What, is, what does it mean to do this thing that we're engaged in? And how can we expand what it means to basically be more inclusive? Like we're really thinking about not just diversity of practice, but like when we open up what practices can be considered craft, suddenly all of a sudden the people look different too. And, right. and that's really important to this project. You know, the, the interesting thing is I still have a real problem with that word craft mm -hmm. because it almost seems like it eliminates the word art where I want one word where craft and art, art, craft, I don't know, where there's one word that describes and maybe actually the word really is making. Yeah. And and that the notion of making replaces the notion of craft and art because craft and art are both they're they're linked and 
they're linked in such a way that you can't really separate one from the other. You can't artificially separate them out by saying, well, craft is metal, wood, and clay, and anything that's painted on a canvas is art. It's still, you know, painting involves craft. It's I really struggle with all of that. And I really, you know, I know make is the trendy word, mm-hmm. but I want another word. I want another word. I don't know what that word is. I mean, in a way, craft deserts, role is to eliminate the the sort of problem in that distinction. It sort of looks at craft as something that that is applied to anything, whether that's art. Uh, and it's like, to, to me and to us, really, craft is about a way of thinking about things that we do, mm-hmm. about the, 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 the things that we produce, whether we are designers or artists or, or laborers, you know, like, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, that craft, like eliminating the need to think of it as a distinction. Like it's not, right. the two don't have, in my mind, they're not, there is no like, oh, there's art or there's craft. Yeah. Because one is just a part of the other. Like craft is something that can be applied to anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've always written it as like art slash craft because mm-hmm. they're so close together. They just, you know, there's no, there is no distinction. Right. right. There and, shouldn't be. And I, that the zine you're doing is just, that that's just fantastic to help. I don't know if you say eliminate it, but at least level things. Yeah. I mean, it's it, really, it's like, maybe, maybe we've asked the wrong question about it the whole time. This idea that like one or the other, I remember being, yeah. getting involved in these conversations in graduate school and, and just always being so frustrated about like, why are we even talking about this this way? To me, it's a, it's a, it's like, a, it's a process. It's, and, mm-hmm. and so therefore it doesn't, art means one thing and craft means one thing and, and they don't have to be in, um, in opposition to one another because they're kind of, they're different ideas. They're different ideas, but they all involve a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, you've made something. They all involve your hands and your mind. They all involve yeah. your hands and your mind. So at, that seems actually the perfect place to wrap up this discussion with Adam Manley. So thanks for joining. Why make Adam? Well, thank you so much for having me. Very, very fun. Why make? Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.